0: Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I am so excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jason Webb. Dr. Webb received his Doctor of Medicine degree from the University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine. He specialized in internal medicine and psychiatry throughout his residency training and completed a fellowship in Hospice and Palliative Medicine. He now serves as a faculty member in the Department of Medicine and the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Duke University. He's also an Associate Program Director for the Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship Program at Duke University and Director of Education for Duke Palliative Care. Dr. Webb, much to my delight, has agreed to discuss the very controversial publication titled, Efficacy of Oral Resperidone, Haloperidol, or Placebo for Symptoms of Delirium Among Patients in Palliative Care. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Webb. We're very excited to have this opportunity to chat with you. Why don't we start by you kicking us off with an overview of this study?
1: Well, thank you very much for having me, and I'm really excited to talk about this study as well. So this was a really exciting study when it was published. Um, so this was a study performed at 11 different sites in Australia with a double-blind, parallel arm, dose-tritrated, randomized clinical trial to assess the efficacy of using primarily oral liquid risperidone, liquid haloperidol versus a liquid placebo for a palliative care patient of po- population of patients who were on inpatient hospice or a hospital-based palliative care service, and to assess the role of using these two dopamine antagonist medications versus placebo on the symptoms of delirium and to assess outcomes to evaluate whether or not these therapies would potentially improve um, delirium for this patient population. Why this study is significant was that there hasn't really been any large randomized trials using these medications in a palliative care population, which is why it rose to the level of being published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Mm-hmm. The clinical oh. trial.
0: I'm sorry. Go ahead, please go ahead.
1: Yeah, the, the clinical trial um, is also interesting because they performed this trial over just about a three-day period, and as we can probably continue to talk about, um, used a couple of different scales to assess the severity of delirium. Um, their outcome was essentially looking at um, delirium scores at the end of the three-day period, um, and their primary outcome for the trial was essentially assessing the symptoms of delirium um, at the end of that three-day period. They had a few other secondary outcomes which they evaluated, such as severity, use of rescue midazolam, um, side effects of these medications, such as extrapyramidal effects, sedation, and I think the thing that sort of caused this to be um, pretty controversial in our population, which was actually the survival of patients in this trial.
0: Okay, so let's back up a second. We're living in this era where we see long-term care facilities in the United States have signs in the window saying, we are an antipsychotic-free facility, which does not bode well for caring for a terminal ill patients. So with this study, what are your thoughts about their selection of these particular two dopamine antagonists, risperidol and haloperidol? Do you agree with those selections and comparing them with placebo? How do you think they made the decision, and can we make these sweeping conclusions based on that decision?
1: Yeah, so this is actually one of my biggest pet peeves about this trial. Um, so I, I think that they selected these two dopamine antagonists, and I, I'm actually selecting my language really specifically. Um, I, I'm going to refer to these medications as dopamine antagonists and not as antipsychotics. Um, and part of that is because as a psychiatrist, these medications are not created equal. And when we use the The overarching term antipsychotic, I think it gets thrown around, but this class of medications or classes, if you look at, depending upon how people label them, it's first generation, second generation, typical versus atypical, are actually quite different. So in looking at this and comparing placebo, and the way they did this trial was they compared risperidone to placebo for haloperidol to placebo. And these two drugs are primarily strong dopamine antagonists with very little other primary receptor antagonism. So other drugs in the dopamine antagonist class can have variable effects. So take, for example, quetiapine, which has a strong antihistaminergic effect or sort of sedative effects to the medication mm-hmm. um, versus something, say, like olanzapine, which has some potent antihistaminergic effects, but also has strong antihistaminergic, has some strong anticholinergic effects, has some strong antiserotonergic effects, Okay. which is part of the reason why that medication is frequently used in our population for things like nausea and vomiting. So in looking at this trial, really they picked two drugs that were pretty biosimilar, meaning that they both blocked dopamine without a whole lot of other effects. So they're not particularly sedating medications. So getting to your point about the, this, you know, facility is antipsychotic free quote unquote. Um, I don't actually always know what the heck that means because they're, is just sort of a whole host of these medications. And so in the selection for this trial, what I think is a major critique is that you actually compared essentially two drugs that were pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know what to do with that in some ways. It would have been much more robust, in my opinion, to have compared haloperidol, which is sort of the standard medication we oftentimes use for delirium in palliative care or hospice populations, versus something like quetiapine or olanzapine or even corpromazine just given the different pharmacology, particularly the antihistaminergic effect of sedation. And I think that's been one of the large critiques here is that they picked two non-sedating antidopinergic medications, mm-hmm. whereas it would have been more interesting to compare, say, haloperidol again against quetiapine or olanzapine.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you did speak a little bit, you referenced this a little bit earlier, speaking to the outcome measure. Did they pick the best delirium rating tool? Is it even validated? And did they use it at the most appropriate points in time? This is a very brief trial.
1: It was a very brief trial. So, again, they, they took patients at sort of their baseline up to 72 hours. It's so interesting that they used sort of two um, different tools for assessing delirium. And the one that was their primary outcome measure was the Nursing, nursing Delirium Screening Scale, which inherent in the name is a screening tool. This was actually um, validated in a trial that was published in 2005 in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management, um, the validation population that this was used in was a Canadian-based um, inpatient hospital population. It was sort of a hemonk internal medicine um, uh, inpatient population, particularly of cancer patients. And so one of the questions is, yes, this was validated in an inpatient hospital-based population, but they weren't particularly um, specific in, in the trial when they validated this to say that this was sort of the same population that was used say, in this trial, which which is a little bit hard, I mean, to be honest, for the, the study okay. authors to pick a validated screening tool in a palliative care population. But, but this was what they used for screening. What was interesting in the way that they chose this was that their outcome was dependent on looking at sort of three subscales from this, which was inappropriate communication, inappropriate behavior, and then if patients had hallucin- illusions or hallucinations. Uh-huh. And the way this is scored is you get one point, there's sort of a two-point major scale. So zero, they don't have any symptoms, one versus two, sort of mild or severe.
0: Right. And this is
1: done over sort of three different time points. So this, the trial was designed essentially if they scored one. If they got a one on that, they scored positive, and that was an indicator to then give medication. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, any palliative care patient who has delirium, which really this is a symptom that the brain is failing, it's a sign of brain failure, end-organ dysfunctions, patients are dying, are probably going to score one on likely one of those three different subsets. Now, they chose those three based on sort of a cohesion of the palliative care doctors, the geriatricians, and the geropsychiatrists that looked at this and said, well, this is the best we can do because there's really no validated, um, you know, agreed-upon primary outcome measure for delirium symptoms in this patient population. So this is sort of what they thought was like their best option. Mm -hmm. So it sort of brings the question: like, is, was this the best tool to use as their primary outcome? They, I think, sort of try to make up for that by using the MDAS or the Memorial Delirium Assessment Scale, which is a severity and severity scale. It's not a screening; it just looks at how severe are the delirium symptoms. That has a bit more sort of broad assessment across the delirium literature. But from a screening assessment, the the new desk isn't quite used as much. I mean, the CAM or the confusion assessment method is a much more robust sort of right. the medically ill population use screening tool. So there's a little bit of controversy about whether or not this was the best tool to use and particularly because their, their threshold was essentially just a score of one. Mm-hmm. And so really any patient with just a single abnormality in like their speech, their cognition, their behavior would have been given a dose of one of these antidopaminergic medications. So their threshold for treatment was pretty low. Mm
0: -hmm. But, you know, this is really scaring people, this trial. People are reading that, you know, people who got halval died sooner. Uh, The people who got halval used more midazolam. So were these patients even randomized equivalently, in your opinion, into the three arms? And can you speak to the mortality difference with the haloperidol specifically?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think that's been a thing that's been, I think the biggest challenge to all of our palliative care practitioners. And, you know, if you look at figure one in the trial, um, what's really interesting is that there are on average a little over 80 patients randomized to every single one of the arms. Mm -hmm. Um, However, if you look at the the patients in those arms, there was a pretty significant, though it didn't reach statistical significance, in the number of patients who discontinued. Um, 37% of the patients in the respirator arm actually discontinued the trial versus 22% in the Haldol arm whereas only about 17% in the placebo arm actually discontinued the trial. And that was for a variety of reasons. Uh-huh. What's important about that is that the trial was powered to have an end result of 55 patients participating in the study in the arms that received the versus placebo. Uh-huh. And to be honest, I'm not actually sure that the risperidone arm actually achieved that based on the total number of patients that discontinued. So because this was an intent-to-treat analysis, they could say that, yes, we had more than that number of patients. Right. achieve our sort of 80% a priori power.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: problem is, is if you look at the the way in which the overall population um, by characteristics is grouped, the challenge with the haloperidol group is that they're actually different than the risperidone group. Um, and the, they actually mentioned this in the limitations that was sort of buried a little bit later into the trial is that that population, particularly the haloperidol arm had a, older population, so more of the patients were over the age of 65 years old, they received about almost three times the oral morphine equivalent um, in the Haldol arm compared to the others. So the average opiate or the median opiate dose was about seven oromorphine morphine equivalents for Resperidone, about 33 oral morphine equivalents for Haldol, versus only 15 in the placebo group. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the patients that received the antidopinergic medications were more likely to receive Medazolam. Mm-hmm. So if you look at If you step back, big picture, summarize that. So you have patients who received haloperidol. They were older. They got more morphine equivalents as far as opiates during that three-day period. And they're more likely to get midazolam. Uh We know that in a sick patient population who get a lot of polypharmacy, like opiates, benzodiazepines, these medications, that their risk of dying is probably higher. Uh So it's a little bit tough to say that actually these populations were, you know, actually all the same. And... So it's really difficult to sort of say whether or not that those sort of maybe co-interventions with the medazolam or the fact that that patient population was potentially sicker or had a higher symptom burden to begin with, which may be an indicator that they were at higher risk for dying anyway, might have colored the overall outcome of the trial. Mm-hmm. And so I worry about that significantly based on the way the data looks. Yeah. The other thing that you don't see in the specific um, trial figures, but as in a supplemental um, e-figure is that a lot of what they comment on is the delirium symptom scores. And there's a figure one that's the MDAS scores of the delirium severity over the study period. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting is that the actual baseline delirium severity, if you compare placebo to the two endopinergic arms, shows that actually the risperidone group and the haloperidol group, just at baseline, actually had a higher symptom score.
0: Mm -hmm. And if you
1: follow those curves out, um, it actually makes it look like that the placebo arm had a lower overall symptom severity, though they started with lower symptoms to begin with.
0: Uh-huh. So
1: in some ways, at the very beginning of the trial, at inception, the patients in the antidominergic arms were actually more symptomatic. So does that mean they were sicker? Does that mean that they actually were closer to the end of life because they had a higher symptom burden? Uh-huh. It's a little hard to extrapolate that, but I find that sort of curious that the patient's were initially randomized to the trial, actually were more symptomatic when they started. And then again, with this primary outcome that potentially, actually not the primary outcome, but the secondary outcome that that mortality was different, um, it's hard to interpret in the setting of higher symptom scores at baseline, more morphine, more midazolam, and that this is an older patient population.
0: So uh, having said what you just went through, which certainly seems like it skewed the deck to me, uh, given these results, can we generalize the outcomes to, quote, all uh, palliative care patients, people with a serious illness, those that we typically see in practice? So it sounds like you don't think they really studied a representative population or at least an equivalent population across the three arms. Is that correct?
1: I don't. And I think part of this is sort of looking at the overall patient population that they started with.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, so the
1: majority of these patients were males with cancer, um, and the majority of them were um, over the age of 65. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So if I have a patient who's under the age of 65, let's say who has end-stage heart failure, is that if I'm on an inpatient hospice unit and I've got heart failure patients, patients with dementia or end-stage Parkinson's disease, end-stage hypoxic respiratory failure from COPD, I don't know that I can actually generalize just the baseline population of this trial to an overall palliative care population. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes partly the title of this trial a little bit misleading. Mm-hmm. Um, these patients were on a palliative care unit or a hospice unit, but they were really primarily cancer patients. So, mm-hmm. so from that standpoint, I don't know how to generalize this to other patients who might suffer from delirium. Mm-hmm. And again, that being said, it's-
0: Go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: It, it's also hard to sort of say, well, would my patient who comes in, say, with dementia, who's not receiving any opiates, who's under the age of 65, is that the same palliative care, quote-unquote, population that was studied in this trial? Mm -hmm. So I have a really hard time saying that this is entirely generalizable to my entire inpatient hospice unit um, just based on the data from this trial and their study population.
0: So having said everything that you just shared with us, can you share what the take-home message should be for hospice and palliative care clinicians? Should we throw the anti-dopaminergic drugs out the window? Should we let the little old lady who really thinks the boogeyman is in the closet suffer with that fear? Um, how should we let this trial influence the way we take care of patients who often suffer from very frightening delirium?
1: Yeah, and just to back up one second, I think part of the take-home question here too is that when they randomized this trial they excluded patients in the last week of life Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so at our hospice here at Duke the average length of stay is less than a week right and so the patients in this trial on average in the placebo arms survived about um, I think it was 26 days versus those um, in the other arms were about 17 versus 16 days Mm
0: -hmm. this
1: is longer than maybe for a lot of inpatient say hospices where I think this is sort of added to the general population. If you have a length of stay that's less than a week, if you have a patient who has um, severe delirium, this trial actually, if you look at the outcomes, only included patients, if you look at the symptom severity scores were mild to moderate. Mm -hmm. If I have a patient who is in, I think, the last week of life with severe delirium symptoms, agitation, psychosis, I don't think that you can apply this trial to those patients at all. Okay. Um, these patients had mild symptoms. And so I think for, for the, the bottom line and the take-home is that this is pretty specific. You know, okay. patients who are over the age of 65, those who had um, mild to moderate delirium, those whose life expectancy was longer than a week. Um, and so other patients outside of that, um, I don't think we can apply this to. And particularly if you want to pick another medication, like if your hospice or your inpatient palliative care service wants to use a more sedating antidopinergic medication like quetiapine or clopromazine, Uh I don't know that you can apply this at all because they didn't use a drug that was biosimilar to those. Uh So really, I think the study tells us a little bit about a specific patient population. I think it's a little bit raises the, the bar that we need to have better symptom management science, particularly for delirium with this class of medications and choosing treatment settings that seem appropriate for the types of tools we're using for screening. Mm-hmm. But I don't necessarily think that this should cause us all to sort of just say that we should get rid of this entire class of medications.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so the accompanying editorial for this trial, I think, was actually a disservice because I think they jumped to conclusions about the role of these medications. Um, and I think there's a lot of skepticism that should be warranted in reviewing this and applying this to a, quote-unquote, palliative care population, say, on an inpatient consult service
0: mm-hmm. um, or even
1: to patients who are in the last week of life.
0: Mm-hmm. So for my little old lady who really thinks there's an alligator under the bed and she's a few days out from death, you're okay with me reaching for the Haldol, yes?
1: Yeah, I think that, again, because they excluded patients who are in the last week of life, that if the patient appears symptomatic and is distressed, and and delirium, for me as a clinician, that's akin to having severe pain. That's a distressing symptom that's limiting their quality of life in their last days. And I would continue to use haloperidol to try to manage those symptoms.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. So, Dr. Webb, we're going to look for you to design the next trial and set us all straight, okay? Can we <laughs> count on you for that one? <laughs> I'll
1: look forward to it.
0: Any last comments, Dr. Webb? We're very appreciative of your time. Yeah, I think, you
1: know, my last comment would be, you know, with any of these trials when they come out, especially in a strong journal, it's always really important to sit down and kind of dissect what they did. You know, look at the study population, look at the intervention, look at the tools that they used to assess symptoms and what their outcomes are. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes, we'll read a headline in, in a paper or hear about this um, at our national meeting, and it, it takes a little bit of a time to do a deep dive into really what they did and who these patients are. But it's really important because the word can get out that this could be a problem, but mm-hmm. the reality is is that this is a pretty specific patient population with a short intervention over a couple of days, mm-hmm. and it's hard to really generalize this to, I think, our entire palliative care population. Yeah. One of the challenges in using these medicines is that they're not all created equal. And um, if you look at really sort of the neuroscience of how these medications can be used, they're all quite different. And okay. and it's really important to be a little bit skeptical about a really um, significant negative outcome, particularly also I think the take on point is that the mortality wasn't their primary, a priori powered outcome. It was mm-hmm. a secondary outcome.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I'm not really sure that... Um, we can extrapolate that entirely to our patient population. So I wouldn't throw the health all out um, for anybody at this point, but I think it's, this really brings to light the fact that we need more trials,
0: mm-hmm.
1: probably another trial comparing haloperidol to another medication, and then some cross-comparison. Um, Part of what this trial didn't do is compare the two medications against each other.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and a trial that actually has some crossover or, or the ability specifically to assess of these medications, particularly one that's more sedating against hurdle, I think would give us a lot more information.
0: I'm so sure. I th- well, thank you so much for your insights. I know this, this trial has really rattled the cage of many a pal- hospice and palliative care practitioner. I've even heard a whole healthcare care system saying, that's it, no more antidopaminergic drugs for um, delirium. So it, it's good to shed this light on this. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jason Webb from Duke University. Such an insightful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2017, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificates in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.